Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast. I'm Ron Hogan, and I'll be talking to Alex Wichel and Will Schwalbe about their memoirs and about the art of memoir writing. The two books are Alex's All Gone, a memoir of my mother's dementia with refreshments, and Will's is the End of Your Life Book Club. And the reason that I brought the two of them together is although their stories have a lot of differences between them, at the core, I think there's a great story in each of them about being adult children and dealing with your relationship uh, with your parents, particularly your mothers in both of these cases, as they themselves are getting older and coming to terms with that, particularly as they're nearing the ends, ends of their lives. And you each address that in in different ways. So I thought it would be great to get the two of you in the room together. I guess let's start with you, Will. Tell us a little bit about what exactly the End of Your Life book club was in terms of the context of, of you and your mom and how it came, how the book club came about. So the, the End of Your Life book club was actually kind of started by accident. Mom and I had always talked about books all our lives when uh, we were having any kind of conversation. At some point, one of us would say, what are you reading? And we'd talk about whatever book we were reading. We also tended to talk about books a lot when we were stressed when we were anxious, when there was something that we wanted to talk about, but we wanted to talk about it obliquely, we, we didn't want to face it head on. Books were always a really good way for us to approach that. So in 2007, mom had returned from a trip to Pakistan and Afghanistan, where she was doing some humanitarian work, and was sick. And she got sicker, and we thought it was hepatitis, and eventually she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is the most lethal of all cancers. So I started accompanying her to the hospital and doctor's visits for chemo and things like that, as did my father, as did my siblings, as did a lot of friends. But, but it turned out I usually went with her to chemo. And just because of the situation, we started talking about books more and more and more and reading books more and more and more. And it was actually on the first time I went with her to chemo that I kind of joked, if we keep reading the same book and talking about them, it's kind of like a book club, isn't it? And she laughed and said, uh, well, doesn't a book club need food? And I said, well, it'll be a foodless book club. And from then on, we, we didn't talk so much about the club, but we talked about books. We talked constantly about books. And it, it turned out to be a very powerful and important way for us to connect with each other. We, we continued on right until she died. And like you said just now, and you, you mentioned this in the book, that the books are, you know, they help us talk and they they give us something to talk about when we don't want to talk about ourselves is the way you put it in the memoir. Yeah. When you're with someone at chemo, you're there from anywhere from one to seven hours and sometimes you just don't feel like talking about yourself. And one of the, the books we read early on was a book called The Etiquette of Illness. And, and I found it a really powerful book. It's a how-to book. And it taught me, instead of saying to my mom, how are you feeling, to say, do you want to talk about how you're feeling? And sometimes she'd say, no. And so, okay, she doesn't want to talk about how she's feeling. What else are we going to talk about? And there were always books. Alex, I mean, your mom had a di very different diagnosis, but it sounds like you're very familiar with the same process of taking your mom to the hospital and, and waiting in waiting rooms with her. Yes, I mean, my book deals with discovering my mother's dementia in 2005. My mother's a college professor, so very much like Will's mother, an educator and somebody who was very life-of-the-mind oriented. What made reading Will's book very difficult for me was my sister died of breast cancer in February, 
And I did a lot of chemo visiting with her over the last few years. Unfortunately, she was not a reader. She still didn't want to talk about how she felt, so we could talk about her kids or something else, but it really, you know, the idea of this, very much it's a perfect thing to talk about when you don't want to talk about the fact that one of you is dying. Mm. Oh, I'm so, so sorry to hear that, yeah. Alex. It's, it's, a, it's a weird, it's a, it's a weird, yeah. it's a weird year to have had. But anyway, yes, the difference I think the the key difference between Will's book and mine is that his mom was herself in her own head until she died, and my mom is still alive and unable to read and unable to really remember much. She does recognize me, which is nice, but past that, can't really have a conversation with her. You talk about during that process of losing her in, in that sense that for for you in this memoir, it's not so much books as the family recipes that are handed down from, from her mother to her and then on to you that sort of are, the, are that binding glue uh, right. or a binding glue in your right. relationship. Right. There, there were um, my father's mother's recipes. Okay. Just to, you know, my mother's mother I liked very much, but cooking was not one of her uh, strengths. But yes... Cooking my mother's food really made me feel better. There were rules, you know, unlike when you write, unlike when you go to the doctor, you actually know what is going to happen. A plus B always equals C. If you follow the recipe and you know it works, when you sit down to write, it doesn't work out that way. If you go to get a blood test, it doesn't always work out that way. So it was very comforting to me to make her food and have the experience of making my house smell like hers and sort of going back in time to a place where nothing had changed yet. In the process, you know, one of the first things that her doctor says to you, actually before we talk about that, I, I should backtrack even further to when you first learn what's going on in that the doctor's trip where you're really first getting a sense of the extent to which your mom's problem exists and how long it had already been going on before you had caught it. Because that is an very stressful and, and powerful scene. Right. Well, you know, my mother always hated doctors. My mother was born in 1931. She had polio when she was growing up. So she spent a lot of time in hospitals with doctors. She was always very suspicious of hospitals and doctors. And when any one of us, I'm the oldest of four children, when any one of us was sick as kids, the minute was 99.1, we would be in the doctor's office. So for us, she would always go to the doctor. For herself, she would never go to the doctor. So I asked her, I asked her, I asked her, I asked if I could go with her, and she said no. So finally it got so bad that I knew something was wrong, and I insisted I go with her, and then all hell broke loose because I discovered that all the two years prior to that when she had been telling me everything was okay, nothing was okay. As you told us, you know, your situation, Will, was a little bit different in that you know, your mom was already sick, and it was, you know, there was the case of thinking that it was related, uh, that it was the hepatitis related to her visits to Afghanistan, and then only later on finding out that it was a much worse situation. But what was your mom's relationship like with doctors over the years prior to, to, to going into this experience? Um, she had her own theories about things. One thing that drove us absolutely crazy, I mean, my mother uh, was a very educated woman, and she had a career as an educator and as a humanitarian worker, director of an organization, and yet she still believed that if the doctor gave you antibiotics, it was perfectly acceptable to take some until you feel better and then save the rest for later. And nothing we could do could dissuade her from that. 
This is because she was not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I mean, that was sort of typical of her attitude toward doctors. She also, and I think this may have something to do with the generation, maybe it was just her, it was hard to get her to ask questions of the doctor other than where are you going on vacation and how is your family? So the doctor would say, do you have any questions? And that would literally be all she would come out with. And I would have to say, mom, didn't you want to ask the doctor about, you know, the tingling in your hands or, or whatever the case may be? She had a very strange relationship to doctors, but we were so fortunate to find an amazing oncologist who really got her, really understood her, really understood that quality of life um, and not necessarily quantity of life was what she really wanted. Yeah, there there are a couple of, of moments in your story where, you know, the decision comes up to continue with, with the chemo treatments or to go visit a family member someplace and or, or some other options. And there are a lot of times where she says it's like, you know, it's not necessarily worth it to go through those treatments if they're going to, you know, knock me out or incapacitate me to the state where I can't do these things in my last days. Exactly. She really was constantly balancing it. And again, we were so lucky to have a doctor who was super aware of that. And mom also had a very strong feeling too, that there would come a time when it was enough. And and when she had done enough, she exhausted every traditional treatment they have. And then when they started talking about experimental treatments, exactly that would have kept her from spending her last summer with her grandchildren. That's when she said no, enough. And another interesting thing that I noticed as I was reading the two of these memoirs back to back is that there are the different diagnoses, but at different points in each of your stories, both of your doctors ended up prescribing Ritalin to your moms. Um, <laughs> and in each case, it, it did not last very, like, it did not last very long that they were they were actually taking it. Yeah, but them. I think it really helped. Oh, yeah, mother. it really helped. It helped to read Joseph and His Brothers by Thomas Mann, which I wasn't able to do, and I really think is very difficult to do if you're not on Ritalin. <laughs> I, I, Alex, I found your book so moving and so powerful. Oh, thanks. And there, there's a moment, I don't know if you remember, when, when Mom sort of says that she had a, a very dear family friend who was suffering from dementia. Mm -hmm. And... She just was grateful that wasn't her. She she knew she had a very limited time left because pancreatic cancer, it's over. Yes. And yet she was so grateful that wasn't her. And I remember you're, in your book you're talking about how your mother, that was her great fear too. That, always. Yeah. Always. It was, hold the plug, don't let this happen to me. But I never thought she'd be someplace where there was no plug to pull. So, yes, but it was almost like she had feared it her whole life. So... In, in the sense that your mother has died, that's a tragedy. But the fact that she was able to live as herself is such a big deal. I mean, it's easy for me to say because my mother hasn't died yet. You know, and I write in the book what I'd like to switch places with somebody like in your position, and I think I would, just so it would be better for her. But was it, I mean, what was it like for your family? Were, were, did, were, you, were you comforted by the fact that she was herself? up until the end and that was okay or were you all just saying it's so unfair that she had to die at all yeah that's such a good question and, and i wonder if you had a phrase about when you're talking with other people who are caregivers for people with dementia and alzheimer's and, and you talk about how you can't really rate right. these things do you know what i mean it's such a wonderful way of putting it i think I mean, mom just kept drumming into our heads this message, which she so devoutly believed. And I, she really did believe it. She wasn't being a Pollyanna. She did feel very lucky. Mm -hmm. And she felt lucky because whereas pancreatic cancer kills many people in three to six months, it became quickly clear that she would have more time than that. 
she felt lucky that she did have all her faculties and her mental faculties mm-hmm. right until a day before she died. Wow. And she felt lucky that she was 75 years old and she'd been married to someone for almost 50 years and she had three knock on wood healthy grandchildren uh, mm-hmm. and five again knock on wood wonderful healthy grandchildren and she just that's how she looked at things. She also felt incredibly lucky that she had good health care. She's yeah. passionate about health care reform and felt it was terribly unfair mm-hmm. that people who'd worked as hard as she had all her life faced what she faced and faced bankruptcy right. because of our cockamamie system. Well, I love when she paid for that other woman's medical <laughs> yes. procedure with then, like, don't tell Don't anybody. tell your father. Don't yeah. tell dad. Don't tell dad. <laughs> exactly. So it's, you know, it's these... These situations, they're, they're so, it's such a, they're such profound questions. And I think, you know, that's something I really took away from reading your book is how important it is to ponder these questions because they're really the essential human questions. And they essentially seem to have no answer. And they essentially have no answer. (laughs) And it's something for people our age, it's, it's, there are very few people I know who aren't pondering some variation on this question. Right. I think that's true. While you are pondering these questions, Will in particular, you know, you're writing about how you're also going through a very pivotal moment in your life, and particularly in your professional life. But I think like a lot of people, your career path is so ingrained into who you are that it's, you know, the the question of personal versus professional kind of disappears or dissipates at a certain point. And it seemed like the experience of being there with your mom and going through this process really sort of helped you reach the decisions that you ended up making for your own life as well. Yeah, there's nothing that quite says seize the day like like seeing someone deal with pancreatic cancer. So first of all, there was definitely that. But it also, it really was in the books we read and the conversations we had that I started to think about the kinds of questions that it's natural to think about around age 50, which is what, what, what is meaningful for me? How do I want to spend my time? I, I write in the book, there was actually, part of the catalyst was just meetings. I was in a job where I was in meetings all the time, and the experiences I had with mom, the books I was reading, just said to me, you can't spend your life in meetings. <laughs> Making the decision not to spend your life in meetings liberated you to be able to spend a lot of time with your mom. Uh, in that process. It did. I had a very, I was working very hard because I had a tech startup, which (laughs) is certainly a 24-7 job, but it was my 24-7. And I could be with mom whenever I wanted to and work the rest of the time. So my schedule was my own and that made a huge difference. And I was very, very lucky to have that. Alex, your situation was a little different in that, I mean, you're in a profession where you do have a a certain degree of flexibility Mm -hmm. to do these sorts of things, but you write, you know, there's a, a scene early in the memoir where you're talking about pulling the family together and laying out what the situation is and figuring out how to deal with everything. And and there ends up being a certain sense of, okay, this is Alex's job. Right. Well, you know, the whole sibling issue is an ongoing concern, I think, for adult children with sick parents. My particular situation was, as the oldest of four children, just circumstantially, When I got married 21 years ago, I had two small stepchildren then, so they were grown by the time this happened. My sister and two brothers all had 
toddlers and infants when this started happening. So they were looking at me sort of like, well, why don't you do it? So in the beginning, I was a little resentful of that, as I think many people tend to be when they're the one who does the lion's share of it. But then when my siblings actually started to help me, I would think, well, I'm not sure I really would have done it that way. Maybe I should have done this instead, because I'm so, so much like my mother. I'm such a control freak. I finally thought, why am I just not doing this? Just, just not spend the time and energy being angry that nobody's helping me. Let me just do it the way I want to do it the first time, and I will get it done the right way. So it was a good education for me not to feel so put upon, to just understand that I actually am very organized and know what I'm doing, and so I might as well just do that. Until, of course, by the end of the book, when I lost faith in myself and saw that what I thought I was doing to help my mother was going to work, and then it didn't, and then... You know, then you sort of have to understand that you're just a, a person and not a machine or a god or whoever it is you'd like to be in these situations. At what point, for each of you, and we'll start with you, Alex, at what point in this ongoing personal process, as you're, you're dealing with these things, you know, when did it occur to you to start writing about this or to even think about writing about it, whether it was, you know, for yourself initially or with an idea towards what this became? This started with my mother in 2005. By 2009, when I was having the same conversation with friends over and over again about how miserable it was, one of them, a couple, the man on the couple, said to me, where's the constructive part of this? What's the, you know, my mother always used to say to me, do something constructive. And so that word sort of lodged in my head. And it took me probably, I don't know, six months or so it coincided with the time when my mother was no longer able to really have a conversation with me toward the end of that year. But I thought maybe I should, in that last year, I thought I should be taking notes just in case, just because that's what I do as a reporter. And, and so I had a notebook. But to actually sit down and do it, I guess it was within a year of having that conversation. It took me a while, though, to really scrape up the nerve to do it because it was very close to the bone and it was very hard to face a lot of that. But I'm I'm glad I did. I do feel it was something constructive. So I do feel that it was time well spent that way. Obviously in your journalism and in the two novels that you've written, you know, you've dealt with topics and, and themes that are very personal to you. But it sounds like this is sort of like the first time where you really sort of turned it in on yourself and, and really sort of put yourself forward. Well, it's not exactly true because okay. Girls Only, the first book that I published in 1997, was about my mother and sister. And the three of us was based on pieces I did in the Times where we would go and have sleepovers and stuff for the weekend section I would write about it and then it expanded it became a book but it was very lighthearted. it wasn't terribly introspective it was sort of like a sketch of what would end up being this so I guess it was sort of a primer in a way but this is just it's your guts on the table there's just no two ways about it once you made that decision to, to as you say put the guts out on the table you know how does that unfold for you in, in terms of, is there a point at which you, st you know, 
do you start feeling like, okay, I don't want to talk about this, but I have to talk about this? Well, I was very lucky. Look, this is where a really good editor comes in. And I was very lucky to have an editor named Rebecca Salatan, who's at Riverhead, who's the editorial director at Riverhead. She really responded. When I went out with the book, I had a lot of very nice conversations with a lot of very smart people. She really understood this. She's one of five children who grew up in a Jewish Southern family, which is sort of crazy. She was the only girl, so she had this sort of weird role in her parents' marriage the way I did as an older daughter. She's very type A like me. She hits the ball back every single time. And she was great because I was saying, I don't want to say too much and it's so personal and nobody wants to hear it. And she would say, put it all down and we don't have to use it. We'll just take a look, you know, just let's see what we have. So come, Will smiling because this is what he used to do for a living and is luckily no longer has to do it anymore because it's really, really hard. But I have to say she was really a guiding star for me in this. She was fabulous. She really helped me, and I felt that I was not doing it alone. I had a real safety net of somebody with very good taste and very good instincts to tell me, when too much was too much, and when it was not enough. So that experience, that aspect of the experience, really made it worthwhile because I also learned an awful lot about writing during that time. As Alex said, Will, you used to be an editor. I was indeed. Uh, <laughs> and so although this is not your first book, you know, it is, I think, much more personal and, and direct in a way than your previous book was. So I think some of the same questions sort of apply in terms of, you know, what was it like for you to be sitting on the other side of the editorial table now and, and, and be the writer dealing with this? Well, I, too, was very fortunate in having a, just a wonderful editor, Marty Asher, who worked with me on draft after draft. I actually feel that editor and writer are two sides of the same coin. I think as an editor, the, the key thing is always helping a writer say what she or he wants to say. And as a writer, it's kind of helping yourself say what you want to say. There's a lot of differences in the roles, a lot of similarities, but I found myself loving the writing. And I think one of the reasons I loved it so much, I mean, granted, there were days when I was whacking my head on the table, but on the non-whacking my head on the table days is because it allowed me to continue the conversations with my mother. So when I was writing, I was talking to mom. You actually talk about this a little bit in the back half of the book about making the decision that you wanted to write the book in the first place is that a big part of it is that there were things that your mom your mom wanted to say that she thought were important and then you agreed were important and that this book was in part a way to get those out absolutely i mean i i, I talked about a scene where I, I sort of meant to tell her that i i loved her because you know, you say I love you at the end of a phone conversation, you know, but when someone's dying, you sort of feel like you should sit down with them and say, you know, give a speech or something like that and say, I love you. And for some reason, when I went to say I love you, I wound up saying I'm proud of you, which was, an, I think, an unusual thing for a child to say to a, a parent. What I also said to her, and this was about two months before she died, is I, I did it, say, you know, I, Mom, I really want to write. I want about 
write something about you and the conversations we've had and the books we've read. And her reaction was, oh, you don't want to do that, and you must have something else to write about, and why would you want to spend the time? But the next day, she sent me an email with a list of all the books we'd read. <laughs> um, and then she would follow up emails, don't forget to talk about healthcare reform or you know, various of her causes. So coming back to that note of, of being proud of her, that was part of the reason I wrote the book. I, I was and am very proud of my mother and of what she did in the world and how she did it. And in some ways, she was a uh, co-writer on this book because as soon as she knew I was doing it, she definitely had some points she wanted me to make. You touch on this glancingly in the book, but while there are a number of books about our relationships with our adult parents... A lot of times those seem to be sort of like divided along gender lines so that it's like, you know, for example, you'll get books from from women writing about their relationships with their mom or books from men writing about their relationships with their fathers. You wrote about how you didn't necessarily find as much about men and their mothers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's still a level of embarrassment about it. There's a kind of not wanting to be mama's boy in the schoolyard. And there's some wonderful books uh, the Tender Bar by J.R. Moringer, which is really a love story between his, a boy and his mom. But, and I was at the publishing house when we published it, we sort of pitched it as a love story between a boy and a bar because that's just so much easier for guys yeah. to handle. The Color of Water is a glorious book by James McBride. Many people sort of said they were reading it because what it has to say about race, it has a lot to say about race, but it's also a love story between a boy and his mother. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. There's a lot of issues around men and masculinity. It's always considered a little bit gay to write about your mom. So I'm gay, so I didn't have any particular problem with that. But <laughs> it's sort of regarded as the terrain of Com Toy Bean or Andrew Holleran or other gay writers. And so... Well, Com Toy Bean doesn't have anything nice to say about <laughs> <laughs> True. But I really wanted to be just very sort of upfront. This is, this is a book about... A guy who loved his mother and two people who loved books. Alex, although it is, quote-unquote, acceptable, in a sense, for, for you know, adult women to be writing about their relationship with their, their moms, you know, acceptable in the sense that there are precedents and things out there, it doesn't make it any easier, does it? No. I don't think I could... That the fact that Will is able to write a book about book club aspect of this as a way of loving each other but deflecting the emotions I think fits with the fact that he's a man. If I tried to do that, if I used food to that extent or I tried to do it any other way, I would be told that my book had no resonance because I'm a woman and I need to have, I need to really get into every single one of those emotions. And I don't think that's a bad thing for me necessarily. It it would be nicer to have the, the freedom not to have to go there. But I sort of welcomed it because, as Will said, that it brought the conversation back to him to have with his mom. It brought me to, to have all those feelings that I was having my conversation with my mom again, and I was feeling everything I felt for my mom. And so it was a great moment for me writing the book to really embrace her again and have her back, even though the painful part is, you know, the emotional bearing of one's soul. In a sense, Will's book is about the books that made it easier to, to cope with this. And they weren't necessarily about mothers and sons or about dealing with cancer or, or dealing with death. But, you know, you write about how if we didn't read books about death, 
then there wouldn't be much to read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's we read, we just read whatever book came to mind, came at hand, what we'd read a good review of. If someone gave us a book, we read it. We read those books that everybody has on their bedside table for years at a time and intends to read but doesn't quite read. And we reread books. And while we didn't choose books that had to do with death and dying, you find pretty quickly that if you read mostly very good books, there will be a lot to ponder around the topics of death and dying. It's, it's, a, it's a big one. It's very hard to avoid. And there's so many wonderful books. Uh, one of the, the books that my mother loved the most was Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, which is a stunning book. It took me a little while to get into it. I mean, she loved it. She reread it. She really wanted me to read it. And it's about a um, congregationalist minister who's dying and writing a letter to his seven-year-old. So that, you know, boom, there, there's just so much to talk about there. But there's so much to talk about without having to go to places that we didn't want to go at times when we didn't want to go there. Although you don't write about the books that, you know, that you're reading during this time, because it's, you know, it's not necessarily part of the story. Alex, were there books that you were reading during this period that were in any way helpful or comforting? Or... I can't really say that there were. I wish I had known about the etiquette of illness when I was reading your book, I thought. Gee, I, I wanted that not for my mother as much as my sister, because I thought that really gave you a great way to deal with it. I actually did read a lot of Colm Torbine at a certain <laughs> point. Just because he's such a beautiful writer, it just made me feel better. No, but you know what I loved? In Will's book, he talks about Appointment at Samara, which I've never read, and I'm, I am absolutely going to, but the whole idea of could her illness have been avoided or was it just mm. time's up? And with my mother, could this have been avoided? I spent so long going through every single last thing like a detective novel. What could I have done? What date could I have realized that if I had gone to the doctor and asked the right three questions, this would not have happened? Or was it just going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it? Yeah. And, and something else in, in your book that I, I found uh, so powerful and resonant too was when you have to make that decision about the hernia mm. operation. <laughs> and, and so you're trying to have to it's appointment in Samara while the events are playing out. It's it's right. you know you're going to be making decisions that will set things in motion. But who has all the who knows? I know. There's also um, I, another thing that, and I don't want to give away anything, but that the way the mink coat becomes kind of talismanic for all sorts <laughs> of things, I thought was was just wonderful. And and I too sort of had these talismans, these kinds of things that took on much bigger symbolisms. There's a there's a story I tell where when mom was spending some time in Florida and we'd walk down to the water to see if we can see the manatees and she loved seeing the manatees and I just decided if she saw the manatees it would be a good day and if she didn't see the manatees it would not be a good day and this kind of what Joan Didion calls magical thinking I think is from everyone I've talked to so much a part of all of these situations. Absolutely. Year of magical thinking is is actually something that I was going to bring up because you know that came out right around the time that both of you uh, we're dealing, you know, starting to deal with these issues, and it, for a variety of reasons, starting with the fact that it's really good, it just seems to have had such a an impact on the conversation that we have around dealing with the, you know, not the death of any particular loved one, whoever it is in our individual story, but the fact that you know we do have to deal with the deaths of our loved ones. Yeah, you know, I think that. That book seems to move the ball forward in terms of addressing the fact that we have to have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I felt I, I loved that book. I thought it was absolutely beautiful, very important. I quote it. 
in that book, though, of course, she relays the devastating, tragic event of her husband who dies essentially on page one of that book. And it's really a book, to, to my mind, about grief. And it's a book about death, but it's not a book about dying. Mm-hmm. When I was writing, it was in mind, but it was in mind almost as what would happen after I finished. And and I was very aware of it, and Mom and I talked about it and read it, because we knew that moment would come when that book would be especially relevant to me, and that moment would be when she was dead, mm. but that moment had not yet come. With you, of course, Alex, I mean, your situation is is a little different in that, as you've said, you know, your mom is still here physically. Right. Oh. Well, this is the whole issue in my book about ambiguous loss, which is this idea that it was uh, a phrase that was coined by a psychologist in the 1970s of when somebody is gone but not gone. The social worker who was helping my family at that point made us aware of this because if somebody dies, it's easier to grieve them because they're gone. If somebody is, if I'm holding my mother's hand, but I feel sad because she's not my mother anymore, it sort of leaves you in a very bad place because she's still alive, so you have to be grateful that she's alive, but she's not my mom. So it's a very difficult place to be for a very extended period of time. I don't really know what the outcome of it is. I guess you just... Maybe you feel relief when somebody finally dies. Maybe you feel just definite terrible loss. I don't know. It's a it's a real um, limbo to be in. After having given so much of yourselves into these particular projects, or these particular memoirs, what do each of you think about what you might want to write when you are ready to write again? I have no idea, truly. I have not given it one second's worth of thought. I'm still, I'm still recovering from having written this. I, I just, I, I, I just have no answer to that question. Do you, Will? <laughs> well, it's it's so funny, Ron, because someone, you know, for, actually for the first time asked me that yesterday, and I paused and I they said, well, what do you think you write next? And I paused. And I said. Something completely different. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's very likely that whenever it is that I decide I'm going to write something else, it will be something completely different. Yeah. Well, that seems like a pretty good place <laughs> <laughs> in the conversation. So you've been listening to Will Schwalbe talk about the End of Your Life Book Club, which has just been published by Knopf. And Alex Witchell has been talking about All Gone, a memoir of my mother's dementia with refreshments, which, as she mentioned, is published by Riverhead. And this has been Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening.